if we applied some military thinking, you know, some tactical operations centre or special operations tactical headquarters thinking in there, would the coach's box look different? Would the way that they think and behave and act look different? They'd have more drone feeds. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. (laughs) Welcome to Season 3 of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. As two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Unforgiving 60. I'm here and so is Tim Curtis. How are you? Present. Good. I'm very well, thank you. Present and accounted for. Now, Tim, you fancy yourself as a bit of a football legend. <laughs> <laughs> Sub-amateur. Sub-amateur, you've got abs- often injured. Correct. You've no. got no runs on the board. I did captain a football team in my career. The battalion football team the under in Townsville. The Cessnock under-13 geckos or something. I just think, yeah, it was a bit like that. Yeah. But I do um, enjoy it and still playing Masters football. This is this episode is not about Tim. It is before not. you you tune out, but it is about someone who who actually has got some some pretty impressive runs on the board in a football context. Simon Eastor, he former professional footballer turned coach. Um, I met him in a little gold mining town called Kalgoorlie, where the wonderful people of Kalgoorlie put on a dinner uh, mm. with the benefits going to Starlight Children's Foundation, which I'm on the advisory board for, and Fremantle Football Club where he's currently an assistant coach, sent him up and uh, instantly likeable guy, spoke beautifully at that dinner, Mm. ran some community coaching clinics um, for guys and also AFL women's. um, And we got to hang out a bit and talk leadership and teamwork and high performance teams and this thing called resilience. He's got a massive portfolio in the footy club, including Next Generation Academy, the junior talent coming through their program, community coaching, community football, some of the Indigenous programs, including their Reconciliation Action Action Plan, Plan. Um, past players alumni, and the new foundation that Fremantle Footy Club is about to launch. So a bit on Simon's plate, and we're going to talk to him about those roles, but also about his own journey um, through the the draft as a a very young player, through his battle with injuries, his time in clubs like uh, Richmond and Essendon, and then ultimately over to Frio where he played, coached. He's coached at West Coast as well, including uh, such luminaries um, as Dean Cox and Nick Nick Nanui as a a ruck coach. Um, And so that in itself is fascinating, but we're also going to to, uh, delve into those topics you mentioned before, his views on uh, leadership and particularly the evolution of leadership within football, but also its applicability into to other areas, mm. um, as well as that importance of balance. And mm. you know, in a very highly pressured um, specialist environment like elite sports, you know, how do you find the balance? How do you find those other other avenues to to give you life after sports, but also to complement uh, your performance on the pitch? Yeah, we'll talk some high performance habits as well, and a lot of what he talks about is directly transferable into no matter the organisation. Yep. Um, so looking forward to having another chat with Simon. You'll love his energy. Without doubt. Let's get on with the show. Ah! 
and welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host Ben Pronk. G'day Tim. Who's turned up late to the studio, <laughs> but we'll welcome. a little breathless. I ran, in, in fairness. I, I did sprint the last 10 metres. And we're very lucky to have with us in the studio Simon Eastor from the Fremantle Footy Club. Welcome Simon. Thanks Tim, thanks Ben, thanks for having me. It's um, I've been looking forward to this opportunity since uh, we first met, so I've just been waiting for the call. Well, <laughs> don't take that personally. This is, um, yeah, our personal admin, our now, podcast admin. Is I am strong. not going to talk to our listeners about where I last left you in Kalgoorlie with the last moment that we had together before you arrived in this studio. But uh, yeah, well, it was an interesting weekend, I must say. Uh, <laughs> it's it's often you have these concentrated periods of time with people where you get to know them exceptionally well, or um, mm. or not so. And I'd have to say that you were the latter. So uh, Tim and Simon yeah. had this immersion period in Kalgoorlie uh, during a Starlight Children's Foundation function that Fremantle very graciously allowed Simon to come, uh, to come up to, and he spoke very well. I was going to say you're our first elite footballer in the studio. But that's not true because I'm here every week. <laughs> that was crickets. Yeah, that was very... Uh... Pause for effect. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not even going to touch that. But at six foot seven, you're definitely our tallest. Oh, I appreciate that opportunity and that you actually have a mic stand uh, tall, <laughs> tall enough for you. Here, yeah, so. yeah. Well, it was full extension as Yonku, you know, reached all the way up to get the microphone up to you. Now, we're going to talk all things footy. We want to talk on-field and off-field leadership mm. and coaching. But you have a fascinating backstory growing up in Shepparton, Victoria, um, with siblings on a farm, with a father who was not a farmer. Can you talk about growing <laughs> yeah. up and getting into footy? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Um, it's only when you really reflect on it that you realise the uniqueness of it. Um, Dad's a paediatrician and still practising to this day in Shepparton in country Victoria. And, um out of uh, he always had a passion to live on the land and for his kids to have that upbringing and so I think I was about four or five living in Melbourne and he uh, took a um, a role in Shepparton as a paediatrician packed us up had no farming experience whatsoever <laughs> bought a farm and uh, it was a litany of uh, errors um, disasters um, some real highs few lows, um, a few electric fence uh, <laughs> blasts across the butt and all that sort of thing as you grew up. But um, oh, look, it was, uh, you could never substitute those experiences and life opportunities as a kid to um, get that mix between um, farm life, country life, um, big sporting town, Shepparton. So mm. uh, naturally you played cricket or tennis every summer and there was footy in winter and never shall the two uh, cross over. So mm. it was, um, yeah, it was a great, uh, great opportunity to do that. And Simon, was it a working farm? Like you, you had stock or grain? Yeah, or, or yeah we had stock. So Dad uh, would uh, raise um, yearlings, um, cattle, and mm. uh, sell them every year to literally fund the farm. But I'm sure he funded a fair bit of it himself too. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's great experience. And um, you know, I think um, I, I look back and I think I wish my kids had have had the same situation or the same opportunity. But Again, they've had a very unique opportunity living here in Perth, which is arguably the best city in the world to raise your kids. I don't um, think there's lifestyle. any argument, is there? Lifestyle, <laughs> beaches, you name it. It's pretty good. It's enough. terrific. I, I suspect that everyone who does not live in Perth <laughs> might, might argue. argue. <laughs> yeah, but it is a good spot. Yeah. yeah. Did you grow up with a footy in your hand? Yeah, I did. Uh, my brother, I got two uh, younger brothers and a sister, and we were just sport mad. Um, 
you know, you're on a 100-acre irrigation farm and you'd be playing cricket right next to the back door, putting the, the cricket ball through the window, um, <laughs> driving everyone nuts. Why, you've got a whole farm, but you choose to be right here in the, uh, yep. the backyard, you know, those sort of things. Uh, Mum always reco- recalls stories of seeing the tennis racket going flying across the backyard, um, tantrums, doors being slammed, um, uh, footies up on the roof, you know, all those sort of great things that, um, you know, meant that uh, you certainly weren't sitting inside watching TV and there was no uh, no game uh, gaming station uh, consoles or anything like that. So, mm. yeah, it was a great, great lifestyle. Were you pretty competitive with your siblings in the, the backyard footy arena? Yeah, look, it was... Even things like basketball, I'd, I remember because there was only three, there was three boys. My sister was a bit younger. It was always one on one, and one was the the ref until <laughs> they got to a certain score, and then that was game over. And then the ref would step in, and the winner would stay on. And uh, you know, I remember you know chasing my brother across the yard with a, a block of wood, trying to take his head off because he'd cheated. You know, and it was uh, <laughs> we were playing for the uh, NBA championship. Like, you know, that stage. So yeah, it's good fun. And when did you realise that you could be good at this game of Australian football? Well, around the age of 15, 16, I haven't actually divulged this to you, but um, I I competed in um, national level equestrian as well. So a two and three day event. Uh, So it was was really taxing. It was very very, um, uh, time, time, Mm. uh, there was strong time constraints it was uh, a lot of investment financially yeah i was playing basketball at state level and uh footy and at the age of 16 i got drafted to um, richmond football club so it sort of made my decision from that uh, day forward that was probably a tip that you you might have a future there just before we leave the equestrian mm. um this is my complete ignorance is that uh, sort of show jumping, like what? What was yeah. the actual? So, so Australia has been really successful in the Olympics in yeah. in three day event, which is the dressage, the cross country, and then the the show jumping. But I got to a point where my legs were getting that long as a kid <laughs> that the tips the of ground. my boots were clipping the fences. <laughs> the, the jumps I was getting little flecks of coloured paint on them. So that was almost the the, um, the Nat- riding on the wall. Nature's there. way of saying yeah. maybe this yeah. you done. shouldn't be a jockey. But yeah, done. I mean you you could carry the horse rather than <laughs> carrying you perhaps. I think I was about 88 kilos ringing wet and six foot six. So yeah, there poor was, horse. Uh, yeah, yeah. All right, let's talk about getting drafted. And, and now there's a wonderful period in the calendar year after the season where the draft is televised and you tune in to watch nearly this sort of high-octane mm-hmm. couple of days of these young kids whose dream it is to be drafted, either get drafted or not. What did it look like back then? It, it you wouldn't believe it if I um you know could portray exactly what happened, but essentially the national draft happened in Melbourne. I was in Shepparton, and the way I found out was the the local paper would do an afternoon edition, and they printed the local the outcome of the draft. Like this is 1989, so it's not exactly <laughs> it's not like it's 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah. I found out that I was drafted in the paper. Wow! On the on the bus ride home, stopped off at the the milk bar to catch the next bus. Read the paper, there it was. So nowadays it's televised. These kids are yeah. in the, in the uh, studio. The whole thing. It's um. There's a hundred articles written about them before they've even pulled on the jumper. So it's um. It's a it's a big deal now. Um, arguably, it's probably put up on too much of a pedestal to start yeah. with. Mm. It's um. It sets very high expectations for young guys, and um, having been in a coaching role for a significant amount of time, you you deal with a lot of uh, expectations and um, and young young guys who aren't necessarily prepared for 
the um, the, mm. the trials of life that are going to occur in this uh, this period of their life. Mm. And we're going to talk Next Generation Academy because I think you know you were telling me that of the hundreds that are in Next Generation Academy, you might draft one or two. And That's there's right. a real question, and let's hold this in abeyance. What happens to the rest mm. whose dreams were pinned on being drafted? So you're 16 years old. You get drafted by the football club. You're expecting to play the first round. Oh, what happened? Well, in those days, they actually had uh, Richmond had their own under 19. So you've sort of got a little period to, to ground yourself mm. and get into the system. But um, by 18, I've moved to Melbourne, high expectations, the whole, um, the whole thing, and um, injuries strike, concussions. Um, you know, some significant muscle um, injuries uh, where I've ruptured both quads on uh, in successive years. Um, you miss, I was at Richmond for four years and I missed three years with um, due to injury. injury. Wow. Um, get delisted. Mm-hmm. Go, so I haven't made my debut at this stage. Um, so I'm 21. I'm thinking, my God, I've, I'm washed up, I'm done. Uh, but a few guys I knew of, had been to Adelaide and played in the SANFL and got redrafted back in. So I thought I'd pack up and off I go. And I think it was really important that um, I still had that really strong goal in mind that was just to play that one game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I packed up, went to Adelaide, knew nobody there and uh, was lucky enough after my second year uh, playing uh, at Norwood. Um, we played in the premiership and it was a big deal in, in Adelaide mm-hmm. at that time. Uh, I got drafted to Essendon. And uh, it was April 13, so we're getting close to uh, Easter Monday, mm-hmm. MCG, Essendon v Carlton, round four. I finally made my debut. Mm-hmm. So that was not nearly, uh, yeah, that was nearly nine years later yeah, after right. being drafted that I actually was able to make that, um, that, that final step. And I could have pulled the pin then and there and be done. <laughs> uh, but it was, um, you know, I think it's a, it's a real uh, example for young people that, um, having a goal um, and being really focused on that goal and being able to drive towards that regardless of the hurdles that you're going to face there's going to be a lot of um, opportunity there's going to be a lot of times where you're going to get stopped in your tracks and uh, you're going to question yourself and question your your ability to actually get there um, and that's where that goal's going to be as strong as it possibly can be and support from family is really important and mm. and mentors and the right people because it's easy to listen to the wrong voices there's mm. going to be people in your life that say oh maybe it isn't for you maybe your body's not meant to be you know i went from being a, a really you know good athlete and good runner to suddenly I, I was too afraid to get out of about 50 60 percent speed because i was afraid i was strain strain a muscle again yeah. so mm. um that took a bit of time, a bit of confidence, build it up, and my time in Norwood um, gave me that confidence back, and I found my, my mojo, so to speak, and um, yeah, I was able to hang around the system for 10 years as a player. Um, straight out of playing, Chris Connolly, the coach at Fremantle, offered me a coaching role, um, and uh, Frio was in a really bad position financially. They, they, couldn't, they literally couldn't afford me, and at, at the start, they were paying me month by month with no guarantees. Mm. Anyway, there's a big, there's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a um, uh, little local story. But the, a couple of media celebrities, um, radio celebrities, wanted to um, raise some money to get me on board there. And as it goes, um, this one gentleman rocked up to the, this function that they were going to do the fundraiser with the cash in a biscuit tin. And that was my wage for the rest of the year. So that was my entry into coaching. That's awesome. Um, which was, you know, it's, it, it was sort of folklore around the Fremantle area that this sort of um, 
uh, level of commitment to people from a Fremantle perspective was there, and I'd always be indebted to the um, to the efforts of those people and the generosity to to make that happen for me to start my new phase of my career at that stage. Before we leave your playing career, I, I found it really interesting how you just reflected on on the goal. And I think a lot of us, when you see other people or you hear stories, it, maybe it seems like a really straight path or a real, you know, it should be like this or it should be this way. And clearly everyone's journey is going to be different. Um, what were some of the things, you mentioned having that really clear goal and having the family, but how did you keep focused on um, pushing towards that goal, even when obstacles were coming up and there were doubters and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's it's something that's internal. I, th- I think, look, clearly there were times there where you, you're you're at the point of, you know, surrendering and giving up. You just thought, no, maybe those you're listening to the wrong voice. You know, mm. I was always told there's two voices in your head and which one are you going to listen to? The one that's telling you, yeah, it's okay. You know, you've given it everything you got. Um Things aren't just not going to work out, and then there's that really determined voice that's um, you just got to keep digging in here. You got to this is why you're doing it, and it was literally that that image, that vision of running out onto the MCG, um, wearing you know a jumper, representing a team, the sound of the crowd, those sort of emotive um, elements of the vision made it get you back on track mm. and um, they're like triggers it's like a trigger to just get you back um, in the cut into the present and understand why you're doing it and that was probably the biggest learning that I had over my time because for a long time you do listen to the the wrong voice if it keeps getting um, supported by injury or mm. disappointment or listening to what other people have got to say had a taste at Richmond but didn't get a game. Essendon actually through a really interesting period. I think mm. Kevin Sheedy was the coach, uh, our mutual friend Gary O'Donnell yep. playing alongside you and then into Fremantle. Prolific goal kicker, I note from the statistics. <laughs> Two goals, I think, was it? <laughs> <laughs> one, one with Essendon, one yeah, with Fremantle. Yeah. Um, and did you, in your time in Essendon, go on an end-of-season trip to Bali? I did. I did. Mm. Uh, you've been getting a little bit of intel from um, the great man himself, have you, uh, Gary O'Donnell? I did have a conversation yeah, with Gary yeah. O'Donnell the other night, yeah. and he said he remembered you on the end-of-season trip yeah, in Bali. And in fact, he'd fallen asleep at one point in time, and he claims that you were responsible for shaving his eyebrow. Is that true? Well, there's a lot of rumours going around <laughs> that that was the case. Um I I can categorically say right now that I I um, deny any involvement whatsoever. <laughs> the funniest thing was that I think he almost had part of his hair shaved off as well. Um, that he came down for breakfast the next morning and uh, went about business as though nothing had happened at all, knowing full well what had happened. <laughs> and uh, everyone was waiting for the reaction. It never came. But what I would say that there were a couple of individuals on that trip who out of nowhere got such a severe case of barley belly um, due to unforeseen circumstances <laughs> that um, I think he might have had a hand in, but it was not barley belly. I think it had something to do with laxity. <laughs> well, he actually has his suspicions it was Shay Cockatoo Collins that shaved his eyebrow when he was passed out on Sun Lounge somewhere. Yeah. Uh, but incredible footballer himself, 243 games, I yeah, think, from memory for Essendon, uh, club captain, premiership, All-Australian 
kicked more than two goals in his AFL career. And one of those captains that um, really set the example. Um, I mean, traditionally at that stage of the football period, you would do run a lap or two laps as a group. And he would ensure that everybody ran outside that boundary line. Mm. And if somebody didn't, he'd look around, he'd know, and he'd just have a little quiet word that they... That's not how we roll. This is how we roll. Um, setting standards. He also was one of those interesting guys that probably resonated with me a lot was, you know, there's obviously the temptations of going out and having a good night nearly every weekend. And he would set himself the goal that this block of time, no drinking, no going out. And, uh, and I'll have one bit of a blowout at the right time. Where mm. if it was a buy or we had a long, uh, a long extended break between games, so that my, that also triggered for me that um, next level of professionalism that's required to get the best out of yourself. Because Gary, by his own admission, was probably the hardest worker in the room. Mm. Maybe not the most talented, but the most committed and the hardest working. And it, it's a great lesson for young young people. I wanted to. You've spoken on a couple of the differences between sort of then and now in terms of the approach and in terms of even the draft and that sort of thing. Um, but you, you mentioned a couple of concussions early in your career. Is there a different level of physicality in football now than there was then? Uh, I think athletically, guys are a lot better. They're a lot better prepared. Um, but at the same time, the game is has a much uh, clearer uh, focus on safety and, and mm. the head is uh, sacrosanct in terms of the um, the longer term effects of concussions. Um, you know, like we could, we would, you could have a concussion and literally get through the testing and all the rest and be back the next week because you're that hell bent to get out and play. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, there's um, protocols in place where it's a 12 day mandatory period that you're not to play. So. Um, I think those days of um, trying to pull the wool over the doctor's mm. eyes are over. Um, I think it's a good thing because uh, clearly we've seen the effects on um, yeah. on even recently deceased AFL players that, that uh, cont- whose brains have uh, given um, a bit of an insight into the trauma Traumatic that they've su- suffered in yeah. their lives. Yeah. yeah, fascinating class action too. I think at the moment with ex-national football league yeah, players yeah. in America. It's a Will Smith movie, I think, based on, on concussion, that. Concussion, yeah. It's a yeah. big thing. Yeah. Yeah, oh, is that what it's, it's called? Yeah, concussion. Yeah. And look, it's a, it's a massive thing in American sport where they're even um, high school and, uh, and freshman um, college students are presenting with signs of, uh, of CTE when they've uh, had a, a traumatic event and, and passed away and the autopsies have revealed that that the um, they've gone through significant brain injury yeah. previously. Mm. As an interesting aside, in the the military sphere, um, there's been a lot more research into traumatic brain injury from things like overpressure, from explosions, mm. you know, door door charges inside yep. houses and that. And uh, interestingly, a number of the symptoms of TBI overlap with symptoms of PTSD. Wow. And so there's a belief that there's some misdiagnosis in some areas and that, that maybe this is a traumatic brain injury, um, so a physical injury as, a, as opposed to a psychological injury in Absolutely. some cases. It's, yeah. So you've seen three footy clubs as a player and two footy clubs as a coach. You talked about that theme of consistency. What's the real difference between clubs? Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's... Uh, there's, Traditionally, there's obviously, um, with the successful clubs like Essendon, when you went out to play, you were expected to win. And the expectation by the players upon each other, uh, maybe it's to do with the culture of the group at the time, um, has a lot to, to sort of weigh in on the, the mentality of a club. And the cultures are built from within, and often it's the example set by leadership, whether it's the 
you know, I think as a, a coach, um, you're setting an example, you're setting standards for young people to abide by and to, to set for themselves. But ultimately, the um, the best teams I've found are the ones where the players are driving the, the level of expectation, the level of performance on the field, literally coaching themselves on the field on game day. And as coaches, you're really there from a strategic viewpoint to give guidance and feedback and uh, and, and really let the players get to work. Uh, all the work gets done through the pre-season period and the week leading up to a game in terms of the structures and, and roles, but um, essentially it's by how they operate um, under the, the heat of battle that is... Um, I think typifies a club and um, their mentality. Uh, a great one with John Warsfold was um, you wouldn't know, based on his personality, you wouldn't know when you came into the club whether the club had won, lost or drawn a game. Mm. It was exactly the same every day. When he was coaching the Eagles. Yep. Mm. And his expectation was on game day that you compete and the, it was about effort, it was about fulfilling your role and, um, and it was a big um, it was a big focus with that group and it gives the players that sense of... Um, uh, you know, power over mm. how they how they operate and ownership. I think is really important. Can I ask one? And I'm going to ref- maybe ask Ben on his reflections. Um, you've crossed the other side of the boundary line. You're in the coach's box in West Coast and in Fremantle. What makes a high performance footy team? And then once you give your answer, maybe Ben can reflect on what you think makes a high performance military team and see if the traits and qualities and characteristics are similar. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And you, you look at teams like Richmond, who are obviously a benchmark team at this point in time, and people talk about talent, but they've got a lot of guys that have been involved with that team over a long period of time. They've, they've spent a long period playing football together. Um, they understand each other, have a really strong rapport. They, um, from there, they can have expectations on each other, how they perform. But essentially, it's about doing, playing your role and doing the basics exceptionally well, regardless of the level of pressure or heat. And I think we saw it um, last night with the way mm. last quarter they withstood everything Carlton had and were able to just um, put them to sleep in the, in the last 10 minutes of the game. And that's, to me, that's the, um, that's the essence of a really high-performance team is one that executes the basics every minute of every game. They're, they're uh, in tune. There's a rapport there that they know what their teammates going to do and they've got confidence and trust to know that they'll execute their role. And can I, not putting words in your mouth, but what about belief? Because when you look at some of these footy sides, you know, 45 seconds to go and they're five points down, you often see the belief in the faces of the players that they can still win if they're down by five points. Yeah, and I think that comes from experience. It's um, being in that situation before and learning from um, mistakes or losses and being able to um, to draw on those experiences and draw on you know their their unity as a team to be able to pull through and and continue to execute the way they they're doing. It's not they're not expecting extra sort of extraordinary effort from people. They're expecting people to, to execute their role. Contrasting thoughts, Ben. No, very complimentary thoughts. I, I think that idea of um, that teamwork and the primacy of the person next to you, there's a great line in that Black Hawk Down movie, Eric Banner says something mm-hmm. about when the chips are down, it's not about the mission or the team, right? it's about that guy next to you. And obviously that is bred in the, the sort of context of a team. But for me, you know, the SAS had an ethos, there's a couple of um, principles from that that I think 
uh, are really important. First one is humility. I think once you start getting the rock stars in, and I'd be super interested in your perspective in elite sports, that if someone thinks they're bigger than the team as an individual, I think that's very corrosive for a high-performance team, even though they may be extremely talented. Um, That relentless pursuit of excellence, that idea of just we talk about that poem always a little further, you know, just outside the boundary line, you know, it doesn't matter. It's only a couple of steps, but that's the that's the benchmark and always pushing that. And finally, for me, that sense of humour. You know, the in my experience, uh, the teams that work really well actually enjoy uh, doing this. You know, they, they enjoy the people they're with, they find purpose, and, you know, a lot of that to me is tied up in, in that kind of sense of humour and being able to, when the chips are down, to, to have a bit of black humour or, or a joke. Yeah, I think the the thing that's most notable now in particular is to embrace that everyone's different and that guys bring different characters or personalities to to the table, but it's the way that uh, melds together to create that um, that uh, unbreakable team. Often coaches will try and change the way people behave or, mm. or operate, and I mean, the the last dance, the the Chicago Bulls story mm. with Dennis Rodman yeah. is a classic example of that, where um, Phil Jackson didn't try to change him. He basically looked to let Dennis be Dennis as long as when Dennis turned up to play, he played his role and uh, executed and helped the team win. Well, what is your back to that rock star sort of thing? We we've seen it in various. Fora, various mm-hmm. contexts, certainly in the military. Um, I, like I said, I, I don't think it's a positive thing. Have, have you, no names, no pack drill, but have you seen that either in a positive or negative sense in professional football? Yeah, you do. You see um, some, you certainly see ego. I think there's got to be a level of ego, but I think that it's also um, understanding the essence of football clubs in particular, the humility and the gratitude towards essentially staff are nowhere are paid nowhere near what the players are paid um, and that's been the change in the game where players probably weren't paid that well 30 yeah, years ago yeah. um, and the staff were virtually volunteer um, that that paradigm has continued but the players are obviously paid exceptionally well now to focus on the gratitude and appreciation that if this team's to operate or this club's to operate, it's only as good as the volunteers or the people that are there to turn off the lights at the end of the day Mm. and that the players recognise that. And that's where things like the best clubman that's voted on by the the support staff, uh, I think they're great um, uh, sort of litmus tests of what your culture's like within your football club when your staff uh, have have some feedback, uh, for which is living, breathing feedback for players that, well, this guy's seen as being, you know, Yep. Um, part of that uh, appreciation for what people do. There's a very interesting uh, legacy, the book about the All Blacks, talking about mm. you know the players sweeping the sheds, Correct. that kind of mentality yeah. that you're not bigger than the organisation. That's yeah. right. Um, and I had the opportunity to meet Graham Henry a, long time, a little while ago for breakfast with a group of coaches, and he spoke about humility and um, in particular legacy. Legacy was a big one. And it was an exercise that in my role at Fremantle previously where I was um, head of development. I got the guys to essentially, um, or individuals to write uh, an article about themselves in um, retrospect after their career had ended. So they were, they needed to talk about what, what they're being recognized for that they have uh, left behind them once they've retired. And then at the end of the exercise, and they read out all those points, the key issue, or the key elements to what they did to make the club a better place. The, the point in question was, so what's stopping you from actually starting that right now? Mm. And that, that's the context you put it in is, 
okay, I get it now. What I, how I act, behave, and how I operate within this organisation can have, I can do exactly what I've written about right now. And so if you're doing that now and the next 15 guys are doing that right now, how good is our club going to be? That's awesome. Maybe it's a link question, but it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be determination. What are the truly excellent habits of the elite, elite footballers? What do they do differently? They're, they're unrelenting in their pursuit or their, their routine. They don't change. They, um, when the alarm goes off at 4.45, they're, they're getting up and, and going to the beach and doing that beach, that beach recovery when it's very easy to turn the alarm off and stay in bed and, and go, oh, I'll do it later. Um, they're, they're, the food, the nutrition, their uh, consumption of alcohol, their the sleep, the quality, the consistency is so important. And yes, it's a it's a little bit um, it's probably a little bit regimented. But if you get as we're probably all aware of, the consistent routines are the ones that enable you to be your best. If you're doing the same routine and you're not getting the best out of yourself, it's probably time it's to change your routine. routine. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and it takes guys a little while to get it. You know, some some players it might be they might get it straight away, but some might take four or five years. And I've I've had a player at uh, Frio say to me, "God, if only I had have ex- done everything that you guys had told me in my first year, how good I'd be going right now." I've, I've finally started to get it. You know, mm. and that's it's good to hear that they've found that way because we can tell them everything we want um, and how to do it but until they actually execute it themselves and get it it's not going to it's not going to resonate and, and it's funny you know and I think it's a function of age when you, you look back and you can see what these kids are doing and you think just change this it's so you learn from my mistakes and there's an element that you can do that vicarious modeling but sometimes you just got to learn the hard way don't you oh, it's, it's, it's funny seeing how people just continue to have to do that exactly yeah we had a wonderful conversation about resilience um, particularly in players in the AFL could you give us your thoughts on what makes a resilient player and not just the physical resilience but more broadly I think I touched on a little bit earlier Um, it's it's really about having a very definitive clear goal or vision of what it is that you where you want to go and I think that it's an interesting you're you're talking about that before Ben about the um, the draft and how these young players are, it's different to now. It's televised, all the rest. A lot of young players, uh, right or wrong, go through a talent pathway, and it's uh, it's pretty much smooth sailing. Um, mm. For a lot of others, it's not as smooth sailing, and and they'll uh, take two or three years to even get in the system outside that draft year of being an eighteen year old. And it really is about, um, you know, you're seeing more and more young guys facing challenges that they may not have faced as a junior. And sometimes I think we mitigate risk a little bit by taking away those learning experiences by telling them this is how you got to do it and this is the way it's got to be done. But often it's those guys that have had the, the, harder, challenge, the harder road to, to get to where they're going mm. that tend to have those longer careers because it's um, there's an appreciation for how hard it's been to get there, um, an understanding of what you need to do to, to stay the course, particularly when you face with adversity along the way. And, and I think also um, for those people who have had that smooth path, they've never had to overcome those obstacles. So the first time they hit it might be in a playing career, which, which could collapse the whole house of cards, whereas 
the the second group that you spoke about, the ones who have had the hard knocks on the way through, they're, they're possibly more prepared uh, because of that experience to deal with adversity. That's right. And look, I've had conversations with players who are in their first year that would um, uh, are dumbfounded that they're not in the team for round one. And it's uh, you literally have to do a magnet exercise to put up all the players that would be in the positions that they're in and mm. say, Nat Fife is a pretty handy player. <laughs> you going to take his spot? Uh, yeah, Everyone maybe not. Okay, you know, and you go through the list, and it's the context that um, suddenly you've been told that you've been you're all this and you're all that, mm. and you've got areas. And then you come into the AFL system, and you're told you've got to work on this part of your game. You're probably not strong enough. You're probably not fit enough at this point in time. And as a junior, they they have been, and it's a little bit of playing in your own age group too, which has its. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sometimes it can be a false positive because you yeah. dominate against Big people your own age. Pond, yeah. and then suddenly the first time you play against adults is in the AFL. It's um, it's a big step. Can we talk, we've spoken a lot about hard work with the, the mentality to overcome adversity and that sort of stuff. Um, what about just that natural gift? Do you believe in, in football genius? Have you seen people who are just um, incredibly gifted and naturally? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You, see, you see people that are, I think this, I've probably seen more with that that absolute gift they haven't used it. Yeah, yeah. Because they think the talent will get them through. And uh, I was saying to Tim earlier that um, talent only gets you so far. It's literally like your foot in the door, and it's your one wood when the chips are down in in the high level of a game, high pressured le- uh, stage of a game that you are able to do things that others won't or can't. But essentially, it comes down to once you're in. You got a foot in the door, and you're everyone's about the same, mm. and it's what defines you is the effort and and the resilience and the ability to to keep riding the the bumps and the waves of disappointment that are going to come along because um, you're now gone through a filtering system where everyone athletically is on a on a par. Everyone from a skill perspective is is fairly close. Look, there's always going to be outliers, sure. but. Um, yeah, it, it comes down to mentality. It comes down to how strong that goal is and um, your preparedness to work hard. Past or present players, if you were picking a first 18, who would you include as the best as in, in your 18? The GOATs, the greatest <laughs> well, look, of all times. James James Hurd stands out as one of the greatest mm-hmm. of all time um, with his ability to, to really step up under immense pressure to execute um, you know, you, you've got uh, another player of the caliber of uh, Nathan Fife, but then at the same time, working with guys like uh, Matt Prittis at West Coast, who mm. was the most dedicated individual I've ever seen in my life um, in terms of his preparedness to to stick to his routine and work hard um, and really make that happen. Then there was the the absolute raw talent of uh, Jeremy McGovern. You know, like he is a probably the best football brain that you will encounter in football. Uh, athletically, a Jack Darling. Um, you know, Nat Fife is a freak athlete. Brad Hill, who we had at um, Fremantle, was a, a freak athlete as well. It's it's a it's a tough question because there's so many. So many um, yeah. You know, competitor, Dean Cox, like Aaron Sandlins, gets smashed and bashed and fronts up every week. You know, those mm. those sorts of individuals. Um, athletically, Nick, Nick Natanui. I mean, we did a... My first session I did with Nick at West Coast was a centre bounce session and the coach holding the the uh, ruck bag was standing there and I said to Nick, just show me what you do. And he actually cleared over, j- 
clear jump over the top of him. <laughs> wow. And hardly touching him. It was just like, oh, okay, so this is what we're working with. It's, <laughs> it's not bad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. talk game day leadership I'm very curious perhaps also to contrast what's happening in the coach's box with what's happening in the field but I've also I guess through the years looked at the coach's box and thought if we applied some military thinking you know some tactical operations center or special operations tactical headquarters thinking in there would the coach's box look different with the way that they think and behave and act look different they'd have more drone feeds <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> you'd be surprised by the amount of data that comes into a coach's yeah. box now on game can that data. paralyze yeah a little bit mm. you can uh, be dictated to whether it's the physical data so what players are producing with their running because remember they're live got gps data fed live into the coach's box we know how fast they're running we know how far they're running we know what they're their thresholds are before they fall off the cliff and need to be taken off the ground. All those things are all feeding in from a physical viewpoint. You've got feedback from the bench talking about a player that might be going to get stitches. You've got um, feedback going to a player because they haven't executed their role. Then you've got every statistic known to man in front of you on screens. You have replay vision in front of you on the screens as well. So I think the thing that I've reflected on the most is Focusing on what is the most important thing or, or set, uh, sets of KPIs that you need to focus on from a, a performance viewpoint um, that we, that typifies or illustrates that you're executing effectively. I think are probably the key things to focus on from the coach's box perspective. The other part is to let the players play their role. If you've got confidence that you've done the work in the weeks and the months leading up to round one, um, got to have faith in those players because if they feel that there's um, a, an element of doubt, they, you know, they, they're not necessarily going to play with the kind of freedom that you would like them to play with and the instinct that um, has essentially got them in the door. Mm. So coaching leadership, can you overcoach? I think so. Yeah, I think that um, uh, sometimes we can get drawn into a little bit of um, wanting to make things happen sooner rather than later. And I think the thing that you learn over time is that it does take time. Um, development of players takes a long time. Develop of, development of leadership takes a long time as well. I mean, it's uh, you wouldn't have stepped into your roles um, in the military off uh, day one, day one off yeah. the street. Um, here you go. You're going to be in a leadership position. It's um, it's not the way it works. It's built on um, built on time. It's built on experience. It's built on um, uh, generating uh, that growth within the individual. And maybe one last one on leading, and I'm interested to come back into the coach's box in a second, but but who leads on game day? Is it any particular coach? Is it the coaches? Is it the players? Is it the captain on the field? Who really leads? Yeah, it's... I, I, I see for more and more as time goes on, it's a collaborative mm. um, environment where... If your players, your leadership players, your your least developed player aren't in sync, 
with what the coach's plan is. The coach can have all the greatest plans and, and intent in the world to um, to get uh, for the for the game plan to be executed. But if the players don't have the buy-in, the coaches are confused, we've got mixed messages, mm. we've got different uh, motives or um, uh, thoughts on what the outcome's going to be, I think that that's where it muddies the waters. So we're absolutely on the field. Players need to step up and play their role. Um, leaders need to set the example. Um, whether it's a contest by contest, it's the effort to get to somebody or the effort to get off the ground to get a fresh player on. Um, coaches need to stick to the plan. You know, if there's a plan and you change it mid mid course, that can create that angst and and, and um, the source of frustration or confusion. So it's it's really important that we're on the same page and and working towards the same goal. So. Probably when I first started, I had Alan Jeans, the great Alan Jeans, as my first coach, and um, he was fire and brimstone, and he was uh, three phases of the game. When we have it, they have it. When the ball's in dispute, and do, you know, and that was uh, that was the way he coached, and the players just towed the line. Um, to now, where you've got very strong collaboration between leadership groups and, mm. and coaching staff, and um, driving the culture and focusing on you know uh, delivering game plans and and team strategy by the players to the playing group and mm. the coaches, which is a big step in, it, in that it, direction. It sounds from what you've just said, it's, it's sort of gone from a, a more prescriptive model, like mm. when, when this happens, do this, to a more adaptive model that this is the concept, but you know we've got that flexibility to adapt at the player level on the field. Yeah, that's absolutely right. There's scenario by scenario, and mm. players are given that um, license in certain uh, situations to to obviously play footy that's yeah. that's the essence of particularly with ball movement and just that that um, will to compete it's, it's really got to be based around instinct and uh, the expectation that when it's your turn to go you go the role of assistant coaches in the box how much freedom do they have the offensive coach the defensive coach and others it depends on your coaching environment. It depends on your coaching model. Um, you know, a more, um, I guess, controlling coach will be wanting very minimal feedback and he'll be calling what he wants. But in the, in some of those environments that I've worked in where coaches, uh, assistant coaches are running rotations, they're, they're making um, uh, suggestions and uh, recommending changes that the senior coach gives them full um, autonomy to be able to, to make those calls. Uh, mm. Yeah, it does vary. It, it varies, and uh, and I think that um, every every coaching group has an element of probably a bit of both because mm. sometimes there's got to be the captain's call or the coach's call where he just goes, "This is what I want. Mm. This is what we need," and often that's built on uh, built off the back of experience where the coach has been in that situation before. Um, they'll draw back on previous experience where it has worked. It might, it may pay off and may not so um yeah i think there's there's um there's got to be fluidity in terms of the, the style of the way coaching groups work together but clearly buy-in from everyone is the most important aspect how and did you lead in the coach's box in on operations any different to what you might see in the coach's box in footy it was really fascinating when someone was just talking about that um i remember being in iraq with an american unit and talking with a um a guy from a, a mechanised, a striker brigade, and he was saying they'd just changed battalion commanders. And the previous one would sit in that coach's box, so this, the um, tactical operations centre, with all those feeds coming in, and he was trying to direct, go in that door around the back and move your vehicle two metres, you know, this kind of micromanagement based on having access to all that data. 
Their new battalion commander used that data to maintain situational awareness, but let his players on the field, the tactical level commanders, um, try and do their thing. And and so the, the reason I asked about that adaptive style of leadership is that's what I think we've always aspired to. I don't know if I necessarily did it very well, but to empower your junior leaders with the understanding of what right looks like and then trust in their training and their ability to make those decisions, seize those fleeting opportunities, react to those unexpected contingencies to, towards the right, right end state. Uh, Simon, you've got in your portfolio at Fremantle Footy Club, Next Generation Academy, community coaching, community programs, the Reconciliation Action Plan aspect, and past players, alumni, and you're also getting involved in the new foundation um, soon to be released. What's the most challenging part of that portfolio? I think it was going from 17 years as a coach um, to uh, being lumped with all those elements <laughs> of the business, having a very minimal awareness or understanding of what it was, and then being left to try and decipher what it was all about. <laughs> the first two weeks, I, I've been in the job for four months now, and the first two weeks, I, my head was spinning. It was just, uh, it was crazy. Uh, look, I, I think there's no, there's no, not a huge difference between um, coaching, being involved in coaching, and, and being able to manage these sorts of elements of a of a business. It's um, again, it's having a clear goal of what we're trying to get out of it, um, enabling people that control those areas or are responsible for those areas to do their job. Um, if I'm trying to micromanage every element of this of of this portfolio, it's um, I'm not going to. It's not going to be productive. I'm not going to have a strategic uh, view on where we're going, um, and we're going to lose sight of um, achieving some of those outcomes that we're intending to uh, uh, hit when it comes to um, you know having a, a uh, an impact that's more than football in our community. Mm. Season 2021 has started. We've got a Welshman and an American in our office, and trying to explain Australian football to them is difficult. Now we go out to 100 countries a year. So 99 countries that don't organically potentially have AFL. How would you succinctly describe the game of AFL to someone that's never seen it before? It's a, I've often been asked this question, and it's um, the only way I can really put it into context is you can get hit from 360 degrees. Mm-hmm. The ball can hit the ground. It can be in the air. As long as you get it between the two big sticks, it's, um, that's how you're going to win a game. But essentially, it's the kind of game that you have to sit down and watch for an extended period of time to truly understand. Arguably, some of our uh, members and uh, lovers of the game are probably up in arms a little bit at the moment about rule changes yeah, and all the rest. Yeah. It's confusing enough as it is. So, <laughs> um, look, it's um, it's a very free, uh, free-wheeling and open game that uh, is non-stop. And I think that that's the difference between whether it's NFL or it's rugby or rugby league. It's um, the kind of game that isn't going to be dictated to by by stoppages or um, mm. in terms of long periods of stop stops in play. Um, arguably, the the toughest sport in the world when it comes to the um, physical requirements mm. of the athletes. You've got to have endurance. You've got to be able to sprint. You've got to be powerful. You've got to be able to take hits, and then you've got to have the dexterity to um, absorb contact while still making a decision and executing a skill, a uh, multitude of different skills. So. It's, a, it's arguably one of the toughest games to prepare for in the world. 
would agree. So, I mean, my final question is one related to balance. We touched on the Next Generation Academy before, the attrition rates. Um, now, clearly, in any elite endeavour, we need a focus. We need a, we're specialists. Um, the research we're doing on resilience is all about, you know, the different components. And if we specialise in something, obviously, it, it potentially has an opportunity cost. Um, do you see, uh, while people are playing in particular, the benefits of them having balance, having the sort of supportive aspects, other interests outside of football? Does that contribute while they're playing? Massively. There's a, an emphasis that you've got to – football's an opportunity. It's not – necessarily a career if you if you think that a career lasts for three years which is the AFL average then it's a pretty short career so I I always talk about AFL as being an experience and an opportunity to open doors to greater greater opportunity in your professional life all the players are working through either tertiary education uh, business or trade trades are hard because obviously you need time to Mm. apply yourself and the physicality of it but if you don't, if you put all your eggs into one basket and focus purely on your football, I've seen it way too often where guys come out of a football career and they've got they go from a six-figure salary to um, lucky to be five and uh, and having to start at a uh, base level um, entry point that um, is going to cause a great deal of stress because they haven't made the most of that opportunity and they've got there's a lot of um, avenues for education opportunities mm-hmm. for players uh, flexi study programs um, their education is paid for as part of their players association agreements um, yeah there's no there's no uh, reason why they can't come out of it with a skill set and with our next generation academy as much as we've probably previously been focused on talent there's um, we're now looking at more so from the participation viewpoint to engage young people to enable them to have more of a possibility mindset than a probability mindset. And with three, I guess there's three streams that they can look at with the, with our Next Generation Academy through participation is talent pathway, which is potentially AFL if you're good enough. Mm-hmm. But percentages would say that it's very, very remote. But job outcomes and training mm-hmm. and education outcomes and, and avenues into tertiary education. So... Um, I think it's shifted a little bit. Previously, when it first started over the previous four years, it has been about talent. But what we're finding more so is that the longer we keep these players engaged with our programs, we're opening their eyes to opportunities beyond football, um, which are really important. That's awesome. And and talks to that point about the club being something beyond just a sport, something for the community. It's amazing. And our our department's uh, motto is uh, more than football. Because at the end of the day, we've seen that football is a great engager but a, and a vehicle to open doors for you and opportunity. My final question, it would not be right to conclude a conversation with an ex-footballer and football coach currently without predictions for the 2021 season. <laughs> now, all of the punters are out there betting on who's going to be up in, around and about the premiership in 2021 bearing in mind you're speaking to two West Coast Eagles supporters here. (laughs) So who will win the premiership and who will be anointed the best player in the competition and win the Brownlow medal? Wow. Well, Lockie Neal's still pretty young at Brisbane. I think he's going exceptionally well. Um, I think that he'll be, uh, again, a tough player to beat. But I think the top four teams, when you talk about, I think, uh, Richmond, Port Adelaide, Geelong, who seem to always find a way of uh, putting together a strong team, um, Brisbane, and I think Western Bulldogs will sneak in there as well. Marcus Bontempelli is um, uh, is emerging stronger every year. 
I think Port Adelaide were probably a team last year that shook the competition a little bit. Mm. Richmond and were more consistent than most. Richmond had a, a slow start and used their experience to get through. So I wouldn't be surprised if I saw a, um, a Brisbane-Port Adelaide grand final this year. That's mm-hmm. that's my thought. And I, I think that uh, Port have got the the uh, the tools to potentially get it. We'll circle back around in September and, and yeah. see how, how your Nostradamus-like prediction ends <laughs> up. <laughs> Simon yeah. Eastall, thanks very much for coming on the Unforgiving 60 podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Get to
now to the debrief. We try to go always a little further in this podcast and greatly appreciate your input. Please let us know your feedback, the good, the bad, or the ugly. Also, if you know someone who is living a life less ordinary, we'd love to hear about them. You can get in touch at debrief at unforgiving60.com. That's debrief at unforgiving60.com. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and write a review for us on Apple Podcasts. Until next episode, keep filling your unforgiving minutes with 60 seconds worth of distance run. See you next time on the Unforgiving 60. Bedroom.